Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 9, Off for Donatiki. The shark miscalculated, Scotty said. If he wanted to keep us from going to Donatiki, he should have done more than just cut the rudder cables. Rick watched the flurry of activity on the repair barge under the tarpon's stern and agreed. A French firm had sent its men to repair the damage. Already new cables had been attached to the T-bar within the hull. Now they were being passed through the stuffing boxes and into the water. By mid-afternoon, the new cables would be attached to the rudder, and the ship would be ready to sail. It would take that long because the cables had to be spliced to the eye splices through the rudder rings. I don't think he was depending on the cables alone, Rick mused. That was just part of it. Remember the steel boat? I think he planned on us backing into it. We would have stove in the rudder and dented the propellers if we had hit that. Dented the screws, Scotty corrected. Ships are driven by screws, not propellers. Technicalities, Bill Duncan grunted. Rick smiled at the young biologist. We've been so busy with the Phantom Shark that we haven't had time for science. How about telling us what we're supposed to be doing? Bill Duncan polished his thick glasses. I'll sum it up briefly. You know, of course, that about one-third of the world population is perpetually hungry. Well, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations hopes to correct that situation. We are one of several expeditions assigned to hunt new fishing grounds. Clear enough? Yeah, that's clear, Rick agreed. But how do we go about finding new fishing grounds? Just keep fishing? I wish that were all. Fish are everywhere, but not in commercial quantities. We know that fish gather at certain places, though, because of a combination of circumstances. Water, temperature, food supply, currents, geological formation of the land under the sea. All those things play an important part. We have to find places where the proper combination of factors occur. Wow, I can understand why Dr. Warren was picked for this job. How about the rest of you? Rick asked. I'm interested in the private life of the fish. Paul will chart the bottom conditions, temperatures, salinity, currents, and so on. I'll work on uh, food supplies, classify what fish we find, predict fish populations, and things like that. Carl Ackerman, the chemist, will help me. And in addition, he'll analyze the fish we find for possible commercial uses besides food. Fish oil, for example, is very important. Tom Bishop knows just about all there is to know of fishing methods. He'll determine the most commercially feasible method of catching what we find. Mrs. Warren will act as secretary and keep records up to date. Why are we going to Nanatiki? Rick asked. 
because it's a central point of the area we plan to survey. Dr. Ward came out on deck and called to Duncan. The marine biologist left the boys and went to join his chief. Rick consulted his watch. He was getting hungry. Isn't it about time Barbie and Chada and the others came back? Barbie and Chada had gone ashore with Mrs. Warren and Carl Ackerman to take some Kodachrome photos. They were due back by lunchtime. Tom Bishop and Jack Pualani were supervising the installation of the new cables. Dr. Warren, after an unsatisfactory consultation with the police officials who had come aboard for a brief time, had gone to work on his records. Rick and Scotty had elected to remain on the ship and had spent the morning doing nothing. Probably at noon, the shore party returned, accompanied by the Dutch trader. Vander Claffens reported to Dr. Warren and the boys, I inquired about the clerk you mentioned. My truck driver informed me that the man appeared outside the warehouse and begged for a ride to the pier. Once he reached here, he left the truck and my driver didn't see him again. It was what Rick had expected. He wondered again about the identity of the Phantom Sharp. Vander Claffens was out because he had been in Suva during a meeting between the Shark and Gerald. Besides, the Shark had to have a boat to get from island to island. Do you have a seagoing boat, Mr. Vander Claffens? He asked. I did before the war. Since then I have discovered it less expensive to ship on other people's vessels than to pay for the upkeep of one of my own. Kenwood owned a boat, Rick remembered. And he dealt in pearl shell. True, he had left Numea yesterday morning at dawn, but how far had he gone? The Australian might have stayed inside the barrier reef instead of sailing north. If so, he could easily have rowed to the last night's rendezvous. I wonder if we'll meet Mr. Canwood, he said. What's the name of his schooner, sir? The Kookaburra. You recognize the word? It's a famous Australian bird. Possibly you will meet Kenwood if you pass near the New Hebrides. He would be working his way northward from port to port. Where do you suppose he is now? Scotty inquired. Probably he is in Vila today. That's the capital of the New Hebrides, located on the island of the Fate. It's not far, perhaps 250 miles. It would be fun to meet him. Maybe we could even talk to him by radio, Rick said. Oh, I'm afraid not. He has a receiver for weather reports, but I think that is all. However, if you do see him, give him my best. We will, Rick promised. You seem to know him pretty well. Oh, yes, quite well. We came out to this area at about the same time, and I think we have met at almost every port of the islands. He is much more adventurous than I. Where he goes in his own small craft, I fly or go by in terrace land steamer. I am the businessman. He is a businessman, but he is also something of an explorer. He delights in odd places where few white people ever go. I think profit means little to him. He does not make much money, but he does enjoy life. After lunch, Van der Claffens departed, offering his hospitality when they reached Umea again. The boys and Barbie walked with him to the end of the pier and took a last look at the city. By the time they returned, Tom Bishop and Jack had tested the rudder cables and the repair barge was moved away. This time, nothing would go wrong. The lines were cast off and the tarpon backed smoothly from the pier, reversed course, and headed out of the harbor toward the barrier reef. 
Rick and Scotty stood together at the rail and watched Il Nu slip past. The phantom shark had rowed in the direction of the island, but Rick doubted that he had landed there. I wonder if he rowed out to his ship, he said speculatively. He couldn't get Kenwood out of his mind. Kenwood liked adventure, Vanderclass had said. If the Australian schooner hadn't actually left the vicinity of Numea, Kenwood might very well be the Phantom Shark. He explained his thoughts to the ex-Marine. Why not find out? Scotty suggested. How? Well, if he went to Villa, the port authorities there would know it, wouldn't they? Could be, Rick agreed. We could radio Villa and ask. Well, let's do it then, Scotty said. Jack Pualani in the Tarpon's wheelhouse thought it over for a moment. I suppose it'll be all right, but you don't want to show too much interest. Tell you what, let's do it casually. How? Scotty asked. I'll show you. Jack walked to the radio man who sat at his control board reading a magazine. Warm him up, Duke, and go on the air and test. Send out a CQ and see if Villa answers. Got their call? The radio man consulted his book of calls. I have, sir. The boys watched as the Hawaiian radio man warmed up his equipment and put it out of the air. The radio man tapped his key for a few minutes, then Rick translated. He's setting the ship's call and saying that we're testing. Another few moments and the clicks changed, developed a steady rhythm. Now he's sending CQ from our call, Rick explained. The radio man stopped sending and began to tune his receiver. A variety of tones were located and passed over. Once the radio man stopped tuning and jotted down a call on a pad. Calling us, he said. But is not Vila. Think it's from Australia. Keep trying, Jack directed. It's Vila on the air now. What does your call book say? They're on, sir. They should hear us. The dial turned, signal giving way to signal. Four times the radio man stopped to listen, then moved on. None of them were Vila. Finally, as they neared the bottom end of the band, he nodded. They're called, sir. Should I answer? Yes, strike up a conversation. Talk about the weather. Ask if they have any late information. Yes, sir. The key tapped out a reply to Vila's call. In a moment, the two stations were exchanging bits of information about the weather in their localities. The Tarpon radio man reported they were just leaving Numea Harbor. The Vila operator replied that he'd like to get to Numea and see a motion picture. He hadn't seen one in weeks. Jack Pualani directed, Ask him if he's seen a friend of yours, the scooter Kirkaburra, doing Vila this morning. The radio man did so, while Rick and the others waited anxiously. Code crackled in the loudspeaker. Rick read it aloud. Kookaburra came in at dawn, offloaded, and cleared for Espiritu Santo. The radio operator asked, Want me to query Espiritu? No, tell him never mind, Jackson quickly. Tell him you were just wondering if she arrived on schedule. The radio man tapped out the message and signed off. Well, that settles it, Rick said. It's not Kenwood. Guess it isn't anybody we know. Might as well forget it, Jack Pulani agreed. We'll be far out to sea by nightfall, out of reach of your friend.
If he left Umea last night, though, we might overtake him before we get to Donatiki. Or we might see him there. Chapter 10 The Peaceful Voyage The tarpon rolled gently in the long coral sea swells. The ocean miles flowed under her keel at a steady ten knots as she steamed to the northwest. By nightfall, New Caledonia was below the horizon. By noon of the following day, the Huon Islands, a trio of uninhabited rocks, had fallen astern. They would make no more landfalls until Nanatiki came over the horizon. Rick had time for his first long chat with Dr. and Mrs. Warren on the subject of the Tarpon's voyage. They sat under a canvas awning on the aft deck and watched Barbie, Scotty, and Chada play a game of shuffleboard with improvised equipment and a court drawn out with chalk. What are the plans, sir? Rick asked. We used Donatiki as a base point, Dr. Warren answered. Then shoot the first leg of our survey due north to indispensable. We should be able to cover the area in a week. That's the smallest segment we'll have to survey. When that's complete, we'll go due east to New Hebrides and make a preliminary survey between the Hebrides and Nanatiki. We plan to return to Noumea for more fuel and supplies in about four weeks. That will leave us with a reserve tank of oil for emergencies. I don't like to cut things too fine. Mrs. Warren added, smiling, And that is when you get off, Rick. Rick nodded. He had known their vacation would not be a long one. It's too bad we can't be aboard until the survey is completed. Dr. Warren smiled. It will take us six months, Rick. Oh, we couldn't be gone that long, he admitted. Chada left the shuffleboard game and joined them. That is too long for me, too, he said. Rick looked at his friend in surprise. Why? You have plans? Chada nodded. I have thought very much on this. While I was in Hawaii, Dr. Warren was paying me a good salary. For nothing, I think. Nonsense, said Warren emphatically. I paid you a salary because you were an excellent assistant, he explained to Rick. Chata helped with the cleaning and preparation of the Alta Yuan specimens. He has a most definite talent for delicate work of that kind. Oh, you are being most kind, Chata murmured. But anyway... I am saving most of my good pay, and now I have plenty of monies to go back to India. Rick stared. Chada going back to India? The thought had never even entered his mind. Do not be unhappy with me, Chada pleaded. Remember, I tell you once, my name means fourteen on account of I am fourteen child of my family. Now I am man of the world, with plenty of knowledge besides what is in my almanac. I think I'd better go home and see all my brothers and sisters. Rick fell silent, thinking over what Chada had said. It had never really occurred to him that the little Hindu boy might want to return to India some day. Well, I can see why you have to go home, he said finally. But we're going to miss you, Chada. Oh, not for long, Chada said cheerily. The tarpon moved steadily toward the atoll. Seemingly everyone had forgotten the phantom shark, except Rick and Jack Pualani. Jack had instructed the sailors to keep a sharp watch out for any other craft they might pass. If they did sight another ship, there was a strong likelihood it would be the Pearl Pirate, 
because few legitimate craft had occasion to sail these waters. Barbie and Chada sat in the bow, their legs dangling over the cutwater while they studied books from the collection the scientists had brought. Rick found them and sat down beside them. What are you looking for? he asked. More information about pearls, Barbie said. But so far I haven't found a thing that isn't in Daughter of the Moon. You and that pamphlet, Rick groaned. When do I get to see it? On the way home, Barbie said. You know, it's a pretty silly title, Rick grumbled. He wasn't really anxious to see the pamphlet, but he had to let Barbie think he was. Whoever heard of calling pearls anything so romantic? Probably thought it by some soap advertisement copywriter. Chada spoke up. Oh, that is not so. I have not seen the book, but I can tell you where the title comes from. Can you? Barbie looked at him in surprise. The pamphlet only said it was what the ancient people called pearls. That is true, but those ancient people are my people, Hindus. The name comes from a verse in Atharva Veda, which is a sacred book of my ancestors. Should maybe I quote a verse? Please, said Barbie eagerly. Rick nodded. Chara closed his eyes. The translation is something like this. With shell board of sea, we slay the Rakshkas and conjure the Atrins. With the shell, we conquer disease and poverty. The shell is our remedy for all things. Thou art daughter of the moon, bones of gods turned into sea-dwelling pearl. Rick looked at the Hindu boy suspiciously. Is that really from a sacred Hindu book? I wouldn't put it past you to make it up as you went along. Is there really such a book? Chada grinned. It would not be past me, but this time is true. That is from the Atava Veda. Look up Veda in word book. I think it's wonderful, Barbie exclaimed. Write it down for me, Chada. I will do that. I'll remember that, Barbie promised. Dr. Warren called from the afterdeck. Come on, Chada, let's have a few statistics. How big was the biggest shark caught? Chada answered readily. The biggest shark caught on fishing line was a man-eater, weighing 1,919 pounds, 14 feet 8 inches long, caught near Australia. But a bigger shark was caught, World Almanac says, by any method, weighed 2,176 pounds, caught South Africa. Mrs. Warren shook her head. What an astonishing memory, Chada. I hope you put it to good use when you get older. We'll do, he promised. Rick paced off fifteen feet on the deck. That big shark must have been about so long. A whopper. Even the phantom shark couldn't be any bigger than that. Maybe the phantom shark is bigger than that, though, Scotty commented. Remember Jack's story? How do you account for it? Rick stretched out on his back and shaded his eyes with his hands. The others sat down on the deck using the winch housing for a backrest. He tried to picture the shark as Jack had described it. Swirl of water and a silvery fin. Well, why not? It wouldn't be hard to make an underwater craft that would look like a shark. Scotty jeered. No, 
Remember it took six months and all the Spindrift scientists to turn out the submobile? Well, that was different, except the submobile had to take terrific pressure. It had a lot of complex equipment. But all you need to go underwater in shallow depths is something that's watertight. Shucks, I could put you in an ordinary steam boiler, close the valves, and dump you into the drink, and you wouldn't even get wet. But the air would run out, Chana said. If you put oxygen tanks in like the submobile had, it wouldn't, Barbie pointed out. At least not for a long time, anyway. Scotty was still skeptical. All right, Rick boy. I'm on the bottom at five phantoms in a sealed wash tub. What good does that do me? Well, none, Rick agreed. I was just pointing out that men can live under the sea in anything watertight if they have air. But for something useful, well, that's different. I can't even imagine what use the phantom shark would have for an undersea boat. I can't swallow that yarn about him lying in wait until a diver finds a pearl. He can wait for months. Scotty held up his hand. Hey, wait. Listen to that a second. The tone of the ship's engines had suddenly changed. They were slowing down. The tarpon rolled more heavily in the long swells. Well, we better see what's up, Rick exclaimed. He got to his feet and hurried to the wheelhouse. The others right behind him. Tom Bishop and Jack Pulani were looking at a chart of the area where the young people hurried into the little deckhouse. Not a thing, Tom Bishop answered. We're slowing speed so we won't get too close to Nanatiki before morning. This chart's a little too vague for comfort. Might be some reefs that aren't on it. Rick looked over the men's shoulders. The chart was large-scale and mostly blank. The familiar phantom readings that usually dotted charts were missing. Even the wind arrows were scarce. In the midst of the chart's emptiness, a rough oval showed the atoll. Five islands were charted, two of them marked as questionable. A number of reefs were indicated, many of them questionable. Strange there isn't a better chart than that, Scotty said. Plenty of blanks in the world's charts, Tom Bishop returned. There will have to be a lot of surveying before all of them are filled in. We'll fill this one in ourselves before we're through. Rick estimated the length of the atoll. It was over five miles long and close to three miles wide. The surrounding ring of coral reefs was clearly indicated. The islands spotted on the ring some distance apart. The lagoon must be pretty deep, he guessed. Jack Pualani agreed. This atoll is a long way from being as far developed as those in the Central Pacific. It's probably a young one, just a few thousand years old. Barbie smiled. Just a baby. How will it look when it gets old? Jack indicated the outlined ring. This reef is building up all the time. Coral does that. Eventually it will reach the surface of the water as the islands already have. Then broken dead coral and driftwood and things like that will pile up on it. Eventually it'll be land, but enough time has passed for the coral to do its work. The entire ring will be land, and the lagoon will be cut off from the sea. Then, a long time later, the coral will fill in the lagoon. It'll become one vast island, maybe ten feet high at the highest point, but not for thousands of years yet. No natives there, are there? Scotty asked. No record of any. There isn't enough land to support a population. We'll find a few seabirds and a lot of land crabs, but that's about all. 
Unless we find the Phantom Shark, Rick added. Jack's hand swept across the chart. Even if the shark is in the area, we might not know it. If we were at one end of the atoll, he could be at the other, and we probably wouldn't even see him. Dr. Warren came into the wheelhouse. Tom, I came in to ask you to tell me when we leave the chartered area. To the young people, he explained. The area in the vicinity of New Caledonia has already been thoroughly chartered by the French government. We don't want to duplicate their work. But we do want to overlap our areas sufficiently to ensure full coverage. Tom Bishop answered. We'll reach the edge of the French charts at about 6.30 in the morning, Paul. I've arranged my watches so enough men will be standing by to help with temperature and salinity readings. Good. Rick, if you feel like getting up that early, you could work the phantometer with me. I'll be up, Rick promised. Jack Kulani looked at the ship's chronometer. Four nine hundred hours Greenwich Sibyl time, which means chow time locally. Anyone interested in food? Everyone else was. The sea air created prodigious appetites. After dinner, Rick joined Barbie, Chada, and Scotty in the bow of the tarpon. The sun was a huge orange ball, supported a few inches above the horizon by a thin layer of pink clouds. They watched it dip from sight and saw the bright blue of the sky give way to a dark bowl of stars. A few hours ahead lay Nanatiki. Rick lifted his face to the sky and traced the outline of the constellation Scorpio. Under the curve of the scorpion's tail, the sky was still light, a crescent of soft blue marking the last of the day. For a moment he thought the horizon clouds had moved ominously into the shape of a great fin. He smiled to himself. Imagination made him see lots of things that weren't there. Just then Barbie spoke up beside him, her voice soft and almost inaudible in the warm night wind. We'll see him there. I could just feel it. None of them had to ask whom she meant by him. Chapter 11 The Atoll A hail from the masthead brought Rick out of the cabin where he had been watching the phantometer. The sailor had taken up a position on the rigging mast and called down, Land! Dead ahead! Nanatiki! Just before dawn, the scientists had been charting the ocean bottom, while Rick watched the automatic phantometer, checking occasionally to be sure the recording drum was operating smoothly. Scotty and Chada had helped with the water sample tubes and thermometers that gave valuable data on ocean temperature and currents. Letting the automatic chart recorder take care of itself for a moment, Rick hurried out on the deck. Jack Pulani came out of the wheelhouse and called to the sailor on the mast. Keep a sharp lookout for shoal water. Rick joined Barbie, Scotty, and Chada and the others in the bow of the ship. Dead ahead, a blur of horizon, was a low island. Jack Pulani called, If our reckoning is right, that should be Nanatiki Island. Keep an eye open for Faisal. On the starboard, the three islands of the atoll were definitely listed as Nanatiki, Faisal, and Nambi. If others existed, they would find and chart them. I want to go ashore and collect some coral and shells, Barbie said excitedly. Dr. Warren smiled at her enthusiasm. 
I hadn't planned for a stop long enough for any short excursions, Barbie. Oh, it won't hurt for a delay of an hour or two, Mrs. Warren said. Please, Paul, I'd like to gather some shells as well. There must be some beauties here. The scientist threw up his hands in mock despair. I give up. Jack grinned at Rick. See any signs of another ship? Rick shook his head. I've been inside at the fathometer. Have you seen anything? Not even a bit of driftwood, Jack replied. Either your phantom friend hasn't arrived or he's at the other end of the lagoon. Tom Bishop joined the group in the bow. What do you think, Jack? Do we dare take her inside the lagoon? Jack looked doubtful. It would take a lot of time, because we'll have to slow down and feel our way. Wouldn't want to take a chance of ripping out the bottom on a coral head. Let's just stay outside, then, Dr. Warren suggested. We could look the situation over from one of the motorboats before going inside. That's safest, Tom Bishop agreed. Take her in close to shore and drop the hook, Jack. They were nearing the island rapidly now. Rick borrowed the spare binoculars from the wheelhouse and focused them on the low bit of land. It was a typical atoll island, perhaps 500 yards long and not more than 200 yards wide. At its highest point, it was only about six feet above high water. A line of coconut palms, like oversized feather dusters, were outlined against the sky. There was no sign of life. It wasn't necessary to heave the lead here to keep track of depth. The clarity of the water would permit them to see any reefs or coral outcroppings. Plenty of bottom, the lookout called. They could see the surf breaking against the shore now to either side of the island. A long, thin line of surf marked the reef. The tarpon reduced speed to a point just sufficient to maintain rudder control and slowly move toward the island. They were within 200 feet of the shore before the coral became dangerous. At a word from Jack, a bow anchor ran out and took hold in five phantoms of crystal-clear water. He surveyed the beach through binoculars, then nodded with satisfaction. Sam, no trouble landing. He raised his voice. Lower the port lifeboat! The sailors jumped to obey, and in a few moments the motorboat swung outward on the davits and splashed into the water. All ashore that's going ashore, Tom Bishop called. Mrs. Warren and Barbie hadn't wasted the moments during which the tarpon was approaching the shore. They appeared in slacks and shirts, each carrying a sugar sack, borrowed from the galley, to hold the seashells they hoped to find. They were the first down the ladder and into the boat, but the boys weren't far behind. Then Dr. Warren and Jack Buolani came down the ladder, followed by Carl Ackerman and Bill Duncan. The seamen in the stern started the motor, and Jack cast off. In a moment they were on their way, the boat throwing up white spray in the low surf. At a word from Jack, a coxswain cut the motor, and the boat came to a smooth stop on the sandy beach. Almost at once, the party scattered in all directions. Rick surveyed the low island and found he could see almost all of it from where he stood. Chada joined him. It is a good beach, fine for a swim or for a picnic. That has never been used for either, Rick said. He shot a pebble at a sand crab that scuttled toward the water. 
This is about as lonesome a place as you can find in the Pacific, not counting Pitcairn or Easter Island and some of those. Even more lonesome, Chada corrected. Those have people. This bit of real estate is quite empty. For sale cheap. Chada stopped suddenly. Say, maybe someone else is here. Look. He pointed at a bit of white paper on the beach ahead. Rick ran forward and picked it up. You're right. It was an empty cigarette package. Native cigarettes with a French brand name. He examined it carefully. It's not even wet. Chada touched the paper and then looked at Rick, his eyes wide. What does do? Rick thought quickly. They were on the beach, about six yards from the belt of palm trees, and below the high water mark, if the line of twigs and other flotsam was any indication. He looked back the way they had come and saw Jack Pulani walking toward them. Jack! He beckoned to the Hawaiian mate. The mate lengthened his stride and caught up with them. What's up? Rick handed him the empty package and put it to the exact place where they found it. Jack, is the tide in or out? Jack looked around, eyes narrowed. It's coming in. He marked a line with his foot. This would be about the high point, if I guess correctly. The spot he had marked was higher on the beach than the location of the cigarette package. Rick took a deep breath. Then this package was dropped sometime today, after the tide had gone out. Yeah, it looks like it. Then Armada's still here, Chana suggested. Rick shook his head. I doubt it. There's no place for him to hide. My guess is that he was parked under one of these palms, keeping an eye toward the southeast. The phantom shark wouldn't dare take any chances, and this is the best place to have a lookout. I'll buy that, Jack agreed. Means the phantom shark was in the lagoon. If he took his man off, must have been from the lagoon side. Otherwise, our lookout would have seen him. Why couldn't you see him anyway? Rick asked. A ship can see through these palms. Not necessarily. It was probably anchored offshore on the lagoon side. Let's hike to the other side of the island and take a look. The other side was only a moment's hike away. The three came out on the beach and stared into the lagoon. Far away, almost on the horizon, a line of surf creamed, marking the opposite reef. To their right, on the very rim of the horizon, was another island, apparently much like the one they were on. There was no sign of life in the open water, but on the beach were two lines of footprints, where one person, barefoot, had come ashore and then left again. He could be sitting behind that other island, Jack said. We'd never see him, and he would have had plenty of time to reach it. Rick winced at Chada's sudden strong grip on his arm. The Hindu boy was staring out of the lagoon. Rick followed his gaze, and then he saw it. Look, Jack! Rick's voice was tense. With his free hand, he pointed. Far out in the lagoon, the sunshine cast a sparkling reflection from something that twinkled briefly and then vanished in a swirl of foam. Rick blinked. Had he imagined it, or had he seen for just an instant a giant silver fin? Chada muttered something in Hindustani. I never thought I'd see it. Jack said awed. Did you see the size of it? There never was a shark that big. I don't know what it was, but that wasn't a shark, 
Rick said flatly. You did a big fin, Chada pointed out. Yeah, but it wasn't a fin made out of flesh. There's only one thing that would reflect the sun like that. Polished metal. Barbie and Scotty hailed them. Rick turned to see the two of them coming through the palms. Scotty waved as he came up. Why well, so Ted over here? You guys have been seeing seagoing pixies? I wish it was something as innocent as that, Rick said grimly. We just saw the phantom shark. <laughs>